0: Hello, brothers in Christ. My name is Joe McLean. You can find more information about me at catholichack.com. I just want to say right at the beginning, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for allowing me to come and spend this time with you to discuss what we both love so much, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this person who has affected us both so much. What a gift we have. I hope to be the utensil in the hand of God, at the disposal of the Holy Spirit, to to profoundly affect you, that you might give glory to God. That is my heart's desire this weekend, and so I pray for that to come to fulfillment. I want to give you a little bit of background about me, a little bit of history. I'm not going to give too much. You can find more on my conversion about how uh, God profoundly affected my life through my CD sets or even on my website. You can stop by and ask me uh, when I'm around or visit catholichack.com. But I have a motto that I go by. You can find it on my website at the very top there, catholichack.com. It's to be the donkey that Jesus rides today to be the donkey that Jesus rides today you know i have a funny little saying that i've plagiarized from someone else who've plagiarized it from someone else so it was said that if samson could use the just the jawbone of a jackass to make jackasses out of the philistines by the thousands think about how much more he could accomplish with the entire jackass Like me. (laughs) I realize that I am nothing major. I am nothing great. I don't have doctorates in, in theology. I haven't spent my entire life studying scripture. I am simply a baptized and confirmed Catholic who's passionate about the faith, who loves our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and desperately desires to share that with all the world. That's why I go by the Catholic hack. That's why I have the motto to be the donkey Jesus rides today. And we can see from the book of Numbers that sometimes God uses donkeys to speak for his glory. So I am happy to be the jackass for God. The mangy donkey, as St. Jose Maria Escrivá used to say. So I hope to share that with you this weekend. Let me give you a little bit of taste of how I became Catholic. You see, I grew up in the Protestant Church, the Church of Christ. That was the church of my father and his father, a very, a very um, conservative Christian denomination, if you will, very literal in their understanding of Scripture. If it's not literally stated in Scripture, they do not believe it. And so I can remember sitting in Sunday school as a child, listening to them try to explain the faith and and. And just feeling how clunky Scripture felt to me at that time. How weird the Old Testament came across. How disjointed it seemed from the newness of what Christ came to do. And so I took that understanding with me into life. You see, my parents were divorced by the time I was six years old. My father was he was thoroughly committed to his sins. Chasing his lustful desires. And so I was raised from a very early age, introduced into pornography and lustful uh, passions. And so by the time I was 12 and 13 years old, I, I, I quickly and easily fell away from that Protestant denomination, becoming more and more agnostic, becoming more and more secular all the time. At 17 years old, the first Gulf War broke out, and I, I enlisted. I begged my mother to sign me over to Uncle Sam. And off I went to, to boot camp. I was being let loose on the world. I found it very easy to pursue my lustful ways. While on my own. I had a choice duty assignment. I was assigned to Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii. Miles 24. I was swinging with the wing in the Marine Corps. I was having a very good time. But instead of serving my country with honor, respect, and integrity, I decided to serve myself and my own lustful desires. I desired every passion and every pleasure that this world could offer me. And I was entitled it was a tough time. I didn't seek God. I was not interested. I simply wanted my own way. Well, I got out of the Marine Corps in 95. Came home. Moved around a lot. Became depressed. Started drinking. Gained a lot of weight. Ended up in Oklahoma City attending a, a radio broadcasting Votech school. Graduated in 97. Sold my car for a train ticket from Dallas, Texas, to Boston, Massachusetts. I got off the train on April 1st, 1997. It was a very fortuitous date. It was the birthday of the woman that I would uh, marry. I moved in with my father because I hadn't lived with my father in some time, a long time, actually. And he was living in Nashua, New Hampshire. So I, I moved in with him and I quickly went and found a radio job. Found two, actually. Well, it was while I was doing a live broadcast from a pizza joint in Nashua, New Hampshire, that the woman of my dreams entered my life. The very first time I saw her, I fell in love. It's cliche. I get it. Totally. But I was in love. And I knew that I wanted to marry her right then and there. And that night, even though I had not talked to him in years and years, I got on my knees and I thanked God and i begged god to give her to me in marriage eventually i i i proposed i'd saved up the money i'd bought the ring and i got on my knee and i gave it to her and she accepted but she said you know i'm catholic and if we're going to get married you're going to have to become catholic too so that we can get married in the church i said well whatever. I mean, I don't care. All roads lead to heaven anyway, right? Whatever. doesn't matter. I mean, even though my family was thoroughly anti-Catholic, I didn't seem to care. So I signed up for RCIA. And I remember sitting there through RCIA, and I think they were tolerating me more than anything else, and listening and trying to ask all the really tough questions, the stumpers, you know? I really wanted to throw out those curveballs. But there was one night This one night when they were trying to discuss the the beatitudes, and they had started to read Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I remember sitting there and listening to that and just saying to myself, it was like a moment of epiphany. It just struck me. It's so clear. That is true, I said to myself. That is how a disciple lives his life. Those who truly desire God would live that way, according to what our Lord just said. But then I was equally clear and equally honest with myself by saying, there is no way I was going to be living that way tonight. I was still thoroughly agnostic, still thoroughly hedonistic, seeking my own pleasures. I knew that when I got home that night, that I would turn on my computer, that I would turn on my VCR and I would lust. I would burn in my lust that night. You see, sitting there listening to those Beatitudes being proclaimed, it was like God allowed me this moment of clarity to, to hear it, to feel it, to think it. I am not honestly seeking God. That I'm not living a pure life. But I had this thought that came next. It was something like, it's a good thing that I'm going to live a long, healthy life, that maybe someday down the road in the distant future, I would be free to seek holiness. Because right now, I'm a slave to my sins. How naive that thought was. To think that we have all the time in the world to become free of our entrappings to be set free from the sins that we so freely commit. That offend God. To kill the life of grace in our souls. Sinning ourselves to the fiery pit of hell. It was a profound moment. But of course, that night I did exactly what I thought I would do. Long story short, I become Catholic. I am confirmed I receive First Communion, First Confession, uh, Easter Vigil of 1999. My feet are washed by the bishop, anointed. A year later, September 2000, I get married. Beautiful Mass, in the cathedral in Manchester. The priest heard my confession moments before. He was a great priest. I still was very agnostic, didn't care hardly ever attended mass after that not long after moving into our first home my wife's entire family show up and of course i am thoroughly put out by that you are intruding upon my space this was supposed to be our house my house this is supposed to be our family the way i want to do it instead of showing respect and honor to my wife's family i show them nothing but contempt I loathed that they intruded upon me in that way. So, as time goes on, it's a spring day in 2002. You see, I wasn't bringing home respect and dignity and honor, love and tenderness. No, no, I brought none of that home. But that day, I also stopped bringing home a paycheck, too. I lost my job. My wife had had enough. She wanted a divorce. She wrote it out on a piece of paper. You take this, I take that, we're done. So I turned to the one person. (laughs) I couldn't think of anybody else. I turned to one person. And you know what? I knew. I just knew it. I hadn't talked to him in years. Why would he talk to me? Why would he come to my rescue when I had never paid any attention to him? I got on my knees in April of 2002, opened up my Bible that I was given in RCIA class, the only other time I had opened it up, to Matthew chapter 5. And I read those Beatitudes, and I turned to God, and I said, God, I cannot do it. I give it to you. You have to do it. And in that moment of time, God allowed me another epiphany, a moment of clarity. I got down on my knees a slave to sin and lustful desire. I was convinced that we were born to lust. Oh, it's all natural. It's all good. Everybody does it. I mean, what's the big problem? It's love, right? I mean, if it feels good, do it, right? (laughs) I got off my knees on that spring day of 2002, realizing that I had to maintain my own sexual integrity. That I had to strive for purity. And furthermore, I wanted to. I couldn't explain why. It was confusing to me. I knew I could not masturbate that day. I knew I could not lust after just any old person that day. I knew that day that I must fix my marriage at all costs. I must fight for it. I must die for it if necessary, but I must not allow my marriage to end, that I must beg my wife to stay. And then God gave me in that moment of time, one of the sweetest gifts that I could ever receive, an insatiable desire to know him. Because I realized I didn't know the slightest thing about him. I was completely ignorant. I got up off my knees that day knowing that I needed to lead my family in prayer. Not knowing how to do that and embarrassed by the fact that I didn't have a clue. I was embarrassed to pray in front of my wife. Knowing that I had to but scared that she might think I was a fool because I didn't know what to say. I was thoroughly, thoroughly Protestant. I was thoroughly, thoroughly secularized. I had a long journey ahead still. And God was leading me, and it was a beautiful thing. I was being influenced by my neighbors and my friends and my family, all Protestants, all trying to lead us out of the church. That church is the whore of Babylon. That church, they teach that Jesus is present in the bread, and that's just all hogwash. It's just a cookie. They worship Mary. You know, they listen to that old stuffy pope guy in Rome. I mean, one little anti-Catholic slur after another. I listened to it all, and I was convinced, yes, this church is wrong, and we've got to go. We've got to go find the true church out there. But I didn't know where to go and I wasn't ready to run off, just, you know, throw caution to the wind and just start church hopping around all these other Protestant churches. So it was somewhat somewhat like me turning my back to the tabernacle, looking out of the entryways to the church, looking out into the world, just searching for what I thought would be the true church, ignoring the Catholic church the entire time, not giving it an opportunity to explain itself to me but simply discounting it right off the top. And I remember speaking to my father about this part of my life and saying, Dad, I got to find the true church. I've got to go find it. I just don't know where to go yet. And my father sent me a book. It was about three inches thick, red, hardcover book. It was a book on denominations. And I just looked at it. I just stared at it. It struck me. How can there be so many versions of the truth. Didn't Jesus say he was the truth, the way, and the life? Didn't he say that all who seek truth hear his voice? Then how can there be so many versions, so many flavors of truth? Because they don't agree with one another. They argue with one another. They discount one another's positions. They take contrary positions. That's not possible. Truth is a person, not an abstract concept. I got scared. I stopped reading my Bible. What am I reading? How can I know what I'm reading is true? How can I understand it? I felt like that eunuch from Ethiopia in the book of Acts that, that, you know, that was sitting there just saying, how can I know it's truth? How can I know what I am understanding unless someone teach me? Well, God hearing my pleas. As I began to pray to be led to the truth, I said, Lord, I don't care if you call yourself Mohammed. I don't care if you call yourself Buddha or Joseph Smith or anybody else. Just lead me to the truth. I want to be with you. He brought two gifts into my life at that point. You see, I had been listening to Protestant pastors on the radio, and they spent a lot of time bashing the Catholic Church. And many times I had heard that it was Constantine in the 300s that corrupted the faith, bringing in all these pagan practices, which became Roman Catholic church teachings, the the Pope and confession to priests and the sacraments and all these things, Mary and all this other stuff. This was all corruption of the pure faith. So I said, okay, fine. I'll just go back in time. I'll go into history and I'll study. I'll uncover what the early church thought. How did they teach? What did they read? What did they believe? How did they worship? I can go and do some research from about the time of Christ till just before 300, whatever that is, I will use that as my guide to find the true church today. And so I did. This was the first gift. I went and I uncovered the early church writings, the early Christian writings, the church fathers, the Didache. This is the teaching of the apostles written in the first century, in the time of the apostles. It talked about being baptized. Oh, okay. Well, you know, you have to be dunked for it to be a valid baptism. Thoroughly dunked because you enter into the death of Christ. Remember that? So you must be dunked, right? Wrong. Wrong. This document says that it's not just dunking, it's any amount of water, just that there has to be water. It doesn't matter if it's flowing water or not. Cold, hot, didn't matter. So long as there was water, it didn't matter how much, just that there was water. And that you did it in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit three times. That is a very profound Catholic understanding of baptism against what I had been listening to and hearing from all those influences in my life. Okay, all right, every dog finds a bone at least once, right? So we'll just keep going. The document also talked about going to Mass on Sunday, confession before receiving the Eucharist, all these other Catholic notions... All right, we're going to move on then, okay? We'll just ignore that. That was just pure luck. We're moving on. We're moving on. I come to another series of documents written around 107 AD by a man named St. Ignatius of Antioch. In his journey... After he was arrested by the Roman emperor and sent back to Rome to be eaten by the wild beasts in the Colosseum in front of a roaring audience, he wrote seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This man was famous. He was a legend in his own day. They would come to meet him as his ship docked under Roman guard so that they could be near him, so they could talk to him and receive his wisdom. This man was taught by the Apostle John himself. Just one person removed from Christ. You're not going to get much more pure in source than that. What does this man have to say? He talks about Our Lady. He talks about the real and true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He even talks about in the letter to the Samaritans about how it's the bishop's job to ensure that a valid Eucharist The valid sacrament is conducted. He also says that where the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church. He was the first one to give us a recorded instance of the use of the word Catholic to describe the Church. 107 AD. Where the bishop is, there is the Catholic Church. Do nothing outside of the bishop, he says. Saint Justin the Martyr, 150 AD, writes a letter to the emperor in Rome and the Roman Senate, begging them to stop persecutions of Christians around the empire. You see, part of it was mystery. These Christians, they go behind locked doors and they do mysterious things that we don't know. We hear that they eat their own god. This is all a mystery. They accused these Christians of being atheists because they didn't worship Caesar as God. Then they ate this mysterious food. Justin the martyr describes the mass in this letter. He says, basically, look, if, if you need to know what goes on behind closed doors, let me explain it to you, that it will no longer be a mystery, that you will understand, and that you will stop persecuting these Christians. He says that on Sunday they all come together in the same place. And there is a presider and they sing these entrance hymns and then they do some praying, right? And then the the letters, the memoirs of the apostles are read aloud. And then there is a homily. You know, the presider gives a little teaching, a sermon based on what they just read in the memoirs of the apostles. And then these gifts of bread and wine are brought up, and the presider prays over them, and they are, they are transformed from ordinary bread and confected into the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then communion is distributed to all present, and then the deacons take it to those who couldn't attend. That hit me like a bolt of lightning. I just read what Mass was like in 150 AD, and it was not like, hey, let's try this out. This is something new and novel. No, 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 no. This was, this is the way it is and has been. This is the faith handed on by Christ. I realized that when I go to Mass, I go to the ancient Christian liturgy, handed on from Christ to his apostles through the bishops down to our day. So all of these early Christian writings, there was so many more, Eusebius and Tertullian. I mean, there was just so much. And it was all so Catholic. I remember that I was starting to feel very conflicted. And then the second gift came into my life. Some very good friends of ours who cared about us, wanted us to understand more the richness and beauty of Catholic teaching, to give it a fair shot, gave us a a set of cassette tapes called Calling All Christians, or actually, it was called Calling All Catholics to Become Bible Christians, and vice versa. And it was by a man by the name of Scott Hahn. I listened to it. For the first time, I heard a reasonable defense against Protestantism. All the the attacks, uh, the sacraments, Mary, the Pope, you name it. All the standard stuff that Protestants have an issue with, with the Catholic Church. For the first time, I heard where we can see these for ourselves in sacred scripture and in tradition for the first time, I heard a Catholic give a reasonable response as to what Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Calvin, and all the rest were doing in the Protestant Reformation. It was very profound. I read this man's book, Rome's Sweet Home. I read every other book I could get my hands on from this man. I couldn't get enough. It was making very, very good sense to me. And so the day came when I, when I said... Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, I had to be convicted of at least one major fundamental teaching that the Catholic Church purported the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So I looked up every single word in John chapter 6 in the original Greek. I needed to know was he being literal or was he being figurative? Protestants say he was being figurative. Catholics say he's being literal. Which is it? I'm no Greek scholar. But there are tools that you can use online. And you can look up every word and see for yourself how literal the word choices that, he, that, that the author makes. I mean, it's amazing. Words like trogos, to to chew, to gnaw. There are other words that could have been used to describe a more symbolic way of eating, but this is a very literal word. Words like sarks, which mean a dripping hunk of flesh, blood dripping off of it. This is the word our Lord uses to describe his own flesh. You must eat my flesh, my sarks. And so this image of literal flesh is in your mind. He repeats himself over and over and over again. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you are to have life within you, and I am to raise you up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He even uses the metaphor, the analogy, comparing and contrasting with the miracle bread come down from heaven in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, under Moses. God feeds his people. This miracle bread, the people call it manhum, manna. It literally means, what is it? They don't even know what it is. But God commands them to take part of this manhum and place it into a golden ciborium and to place it inside the ark as a witness of God's miraculous feeding of the people in the wilderness for future generations. The people, the Judeans, the Israelites, They didn't see that as ordinary bread. That was miraculous bread. And Jesus uses that as his comparison. He says, The fathers ate that miraculous bread. Only they died. But he who eats this bread, my flesh, and my blood, he will live forever. So if the miraculous bread in the Old Testament was something powerful, how much more powerful and miraculous is the new bread come down from heaven which is the body and blood of our lord and savior jesus christ oh but wait he said it is it is the flesh that is of no avail that it is the spirit that gives life right doesn't that mean he's being symbolic no not once does he stop the disciples from leaving him over this hard and difficult teaching. Not once does he turn them around and say, come back, I was being symbolic. Not once does he do that, not once. Instead, he is referring to a much more profound truth, that it is not the ways of the world, the flesh of the world that, that matters, for that is dead, but it is his flesh infused with the resurrection of his body in the spirit that becomes the Eucharistic bread, that we must consume the fruit of the womb hung on the tree of life, that when we approach that we have life forever. Why don't we want the blood of a dead animal in us? Because it gives us death. Why would we want the blood of God in us? Because it gives us life. So he turns to his disciples and says, will you too leave me? And only St. Peter responds, Lord, this is a hard saying, but where else are we to go? For who alone but you has the words of eternal life? It was that day when I came to accept that teaching, when I was convicted of that teaching, that I said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I still struggle with Mary. I still struggle with po- oh, the Pope and, and the sacraments and other aspects of the church. But I was giving my obedience to the church, which is Christ's body. And through time, study, discernment, God has revealed one more powerful truth after another to me. So much so that I cannot wait to learn what I learn next. And I have been blessed. I learned to evangelize my environments. Crescia was a big part of that process. But you see, as baptized Catholics, as confirmed Catholics, we are taking part in our way in the great commission that God gave to his disciples. Matthew 28. That those disciples, those apostles handed on to the bishops, and those bishops down through the ages till today, we as baptized and confirmed lay Catholics are to participate in that great commission through the evangelization of our families, our friends, our workplaces, our communities, our environments. So what does it mean to be a Catholic hacker? It means to take your faith seriously enough to share it with someone else. It doesn't mean to become a scripture scholar, to become an expert in theology or church history. It means to live your faith and to share it with all the world. Well, I was blessed, fortunate enough to be given an opportunity to go to work full-time in Catholic evangelization in 2008. I now am the conference director for a ministry called The Fullness of Truth Catholic Evangelization Ministries based in North Houston, Texas. We put on Catholic family conferences. I just had one in San Antonio for 1,300 people. Father Mitch Pacwa, Sister Rosalind Moss, Dr. Michael Barber, Steve Ray. I, I, I'm blessed to work with Dr. Scott Hahn every year, and others, many more, Doug Barry, Eric Jenis. I mean, there are so many just wonderful Catholic evangelists and presenters, teachers, scholars that I am so blessed to be able to work with and to share this glorious faith of ours to all the world to help enrich the lives of Catholics, and to help share with non-Catholics a deeper and more profound understanding of what the Catholic Church is. So that's what I do full-time. And again, that's a nutshell of my conversion process. You can listen to more of that through my, my CD sets, as well as on my website at catholichack.com. Now let me talk to you about what we're going to be discussing over the course of this weekend. The topic is called The Law of Love, linking the Garden of Calvary to the Garden of Eden and all points in between. Why? Why do we want to talk about this? It's simple. That we, you and me, might become the man in the garden, standing in the gap as priest, prophet, and king. In order to do this, we must ask ourselves why. Why? You know, if Jesus is God, then why? Why condescend to become like one of us in all things except for sin? Why go through the drudgery of life? You know, all the baggage that comes with human existence. Why? Why endure the humiliation? Why go out of his way to go to a garden across the brook Kidron? Why cry out in anguish and sorrow to let this cup pass from him? I mean, is this cowardice from God? Is this weakness from God? Why? Why sweat drops of blood onto the earth? Why? Why? be betrayed by one of your closest confidants, your disciples, your apostles? Why be betrayed by them? And why does this betrayer lead out the horde with clubs and swords, torches, this loud monstrous noise in the middle of the night in the darkness to drag you away in chains? Why? Why does our Lord... Go out to meet this horde. I mean, why not run the other way? Why not hide from them? Why endure all the suffering, the the, the mocking of our Lord? Why be beaten, whipped, his very flesh torn from his body, spat upon, cursed, counted among the sinners, the condemned, nailed to a tree, And hung, naked, exposed in front of all the onlookers. Only to slowly drown in his own bodily fluids. In a horrible, horrible death. Why? I mean, the God of the universe. Hastily buried in a garden tomb for three days. Really? Why? Why descend into the pit of the dead? Why rise again? Why ascend into heaven on a cloud? Why is all of this in a garden? Why endure any of this if Jesus is God? It makes little sense, really. Why not simply snap his fingers and redeem all mankind? Why do you have to go through all of this to redeem us? Now, let's be clear here. To be sure, Jesus is God. It is one of the, the only things that actually earned Jesus the death penalty. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 65, quote, But he was silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Ego a me. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit upon him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards Received him with blows. So, if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, endured all of this trouble, then surely there must have been a very good reason why. I mean, other than to simply die for our sins and redeem us from our just wage, namely that of the fires of hell. I mean, eternally separated from God is what we deserve. And yes, of course, of course, he died for that. Of course. But also, it is so much more. Something more profound is going on here. We cannot read this with our 21st century eyes and ears. Rather, we must hear and see like a 1st century Israelite, a 1st century Judean. We must go back and see it and hear it from their perspective. Would you like a hint? Well, here you go. Remember when John the Baptist was sitting in jail, rotting away near his execution, when he sent his disciples to go and investigate Jesus, to confirm that this is, in fact, the Messiah that they were all waiting for? Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6 quote, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see, and the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Unquote. Did you catch that? You see, as we read the Gospels, we see all of this, this miracles, these miracles, these signs, these things that are happening of Jesus healing the sick, restoring the sight to the blind, curing the the, the lame, the infirmed bringing the dead back to life, feeding all the poor by the thousands we see it all. You see, sometimes we, we, we hear that stuff and we read that stuff and we start to think, oh, these are just good works. This is just Jesus caring, having compassion upon them, being moved with pity at the sight of such suffering. And yes, that's true. That is true. But this passage in Matthew 11 gives us a glimmer, a hint, a hint, an insight. It's a clue that something much more profound is going on in addition to the compassion of our Lord for those whom suffer. He's also using it as a way of communicating to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1505, says, Moved by so much suffering, Christ not only allows himself to be touched by the sick, but he makes their miseries his own. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases, but he did not heal the sick. But he did not only heal the sick, or did not heal all the sick. That's a better way of putting that going on, his healings were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. They announced a more radical healing, the victory over sin and death through his Passover. On the cross, Christ took upon himself the whole weight of evil and took away the sin of the world, of which illness is only a consequence. By his passion and death on the cross, Christ has given a new meaning to suffering, it can henceforth configure us to him and unite us with his redemptive passion. Unquote. So he doesn't heal all the sick. He doesn't cure all the infirmities of the world. He doesn't release any of the slaves from their slavery. So what is it? What's going on here? Paragraph 549 of the Catechism tells us specifically Jesus performed these as messianic signs. So not only is he having compassion, not only does he see and have pity upon these these sufferings, but they were prophecies. For when the people were scattered into the winds of the earth, the ten northern tribes lost to Assyria, and beyond and then the judeans taken off into exile into babylon it was like the end of the world had come the temple was destroyed the son of david did not sit on the throne that god promised would be there forever but then the prophets came and they said that there would be a day when god would bring it all back he would regather the tribes, the temple would be rebuilt, and the son of David would sit on the throne of Gen. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 20 and 24, quote, Look upon Zion, the city of, your, of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Look through Isaiah. Look through Isaiah. You're going to see one example after another. Isaiah 26, 19, 29, 18, 35, 4 through 6, 61, 1 through 2, Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 uh, to the end of the chapter. I mean, it's amazing to see just in Isaiah alone, let alone all the other prophets. The day is coming when God will ingather the lost tribes, when he will restore the people, he will forgive their iniquities, and he will lighten their burden, and the son of David will rule again in the kingdom of God. So this is a foreshadowing. You see, in the time of Christ, this was the messianic age. Thanks to the prophet Daniel, they knew that When that would come in the fourth age would be the time when the Messiah would show up. And so during the time there was this messianic fervor. There were all kinds of people contending to be the Messiah, but only one would fit the bill. And our Lord comes on the stage and he says in Matthew 5 verse 17, quote, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's not just being nice. You know, he's not just doing a good thing, good works, if you will, not just compassionate for those who suffer, not just pity on the lost and the damned by dying and rising again. No, I mean, all of those things. Yes, absolutely. But not only. Also, there is so much more. There is a purpose to each and every aspect of the passion of Christ, not a single minute detail is to be overlooked. They are all perfections of the Old Testament types come to their New Testament reality and perfection. The commentary on Matthew 18, 8, 17 rather, from the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible says, quote, Isaiah foretold of a servant figure who would take Israel's sins upon himself and heal God's people. This servant would inaugurate the restoration of the tribes of Israel and bring the Gentiles to the family of God. Matthew sees Jesus in this role, ushering in the kingdom by expelling demons and healing diseases. The close relationship between sin and physical affliction is assumed. Unquote. I remember a story in John's gospel of the man healed from blindness. He was born blind, right? And God heals him by sending him to the pool of Bethesda. And then after he receives sight, he has to testify in front of the Sanhedrin and they're, and they're accusing of, of him of being a disciple of this, this Christ, and they're questioning him, and they bring in his parents and they question them and they get scared because they don't want to be expelled from the synagogues. So they say, this, you know our son is old enough, let him talk for himself, right? And then the, the man sort of turns it on him. He says, "Why are you asking me this all the time? Do you too want to become a disciple of this man? And then they get indignant with him, right? (laughs) It's funny. But why was this man born? The the Pharisees assumed it was because he sinned in the womb itself. And Jesus clarifies, It's neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the glory of God might be made manifest through this man and his healing. Before this man goes into that pool, he's one way. And when he comes up out, He's something completely different. This is the foreshadowing to the sacrament of baptism. It is a profound thing, a reality, to enter into the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to enter into the watery depths, the the pit of the earth, if you will, and to come out with him again in resurrection glory. Why the cross? Why the law of love linking the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Calvary? To find the answer to that question, we must journey back, back to the beginning, back to the first man, and his encounter in a garden. There we shall find the clues that will unlock the mystery of the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. We will fly through salvation history and see each of the covenant mediators in their mountaintop experiences with God, in their good times and bad. And we shall learn a little bit about ourselves in each. We shall find our own calling as men of God in a garden. There we shall learn what it means to be a man. A man of God in a garden. Let me leave you with this thought. Back when I was in the Marine Corps, you see the first Gulf War broke out. 1991 i joined up as a result so back in the early 90s i was serving in the corps and i was leading a squad of marines on patrol in an area known for a lot of enemy activity so we were out looking for trouble and sure enough one day we found it we were moving in an offset formation two columns i was in the middle as the squad leader you know, there was about 15 or 20 feet separating each man, just in case we came across a landmine or happened to be ambushed. We didn't want to all be wiped out, so we, we spread out a little bit. And we're moving along, and I've got my M16, my A2, buttstock in the shoulder, my, my eyes just over the sights, my finger covering the trigger well, you know, ready for action. All of a sudden, we're moving along, and then my point man throws up a fist sharply into the air and we all stop we hear quiet we're scanning looking he sees something but we don't know what it is we're all holding our breath then all of a sudden he flattens his hand out facing the ground and he slowly lowers it signaling to the squad that they are to take cover and so they squat down and they spread out a little bit more and so i move up I go to see my point man and I stand right next to him and I squat down then and then without even saying a word he just takes his two fingers and he gestures by pointing to his eyes like he he sees something and then he points with his hand in the direction that he saw it. And so I look but I don't see anything. And so I move up and sure enough I finally see it. There was an enemy unit sort of moving in a parallel direction with us. This was it. This is what we trained for. This is what we've been waiting on. So I moved back. And then I began to move my squad up quickly and quietly, setting them in an ambush position. We had a bit of a hill looking through a wooded area, about 100, 150 yards. We had the high ground. We had the superior position. Excellent fields of fire. I set each man in place. And then I told them to wait till I gave the order. This was it. My heart was pounding in my chest. The sweat was just pouring down. This is what we trained for. We had come to engage the enemy and we were going to do that by golly. I waited. It felt like an eternity. I waited until at least 75% of that enemy unit entered into the ambush zone, the kill zone. And then I gave the order. Fire! And I opened up and started engaging targets. And no sooner than we opened fire with all of this firepower at our disposal. We received fire from the rear. We were taking fire from the rear. I mean, what happened? I swung around. Sure enough, at our six o'clock, about 50 yards away from a gully, we were receiving fire. I saw muzzle flashes coming over the berm there. And so I yelled, get online assault through, get online assault through, contact six o'clock, contact six o'clock. And I turn around and I get up and I start to engage those targets and I'm moving quickly towards those muzzle flashes and I look around and I'm the only one. Everybody else was hugging the ground. We were hugging the ground. You see, there's only one way that you can respond to an ambush. The Marine Corps knows this, and they train, and they train, and they train, that when you're attacked, there is no time, no time to take a poll, no time to consider all your options, no time to to weigh the, the pros and the cons of any given strategy. There is no time to take a democratic vote from your men about how they feel like they would like to respond, given the current circumstances. No, there is only one thing to do. If you want to live, then you fight with everything you've got. You counter-assault and you overwhelm them with violence of action and ferocity of movement. You engage. But my men did engage they laid on the ground. The enemy had convinced them that day that if they're going to save their lives, they're going to lay on the ground. But little did they know that that is a death sentence, for the enemy will surely pick you off. If you want to live, fight. If you want to die, lay on the ground. I yelled, get a line of assault through, get a line of assault through. And I picked up one Marine by his belt and I hauled him to the ground and I pushed him right towards the enemy. Get a line of assault through. And I started to fire and I started to fire and I started to fire. But they just hugged the ground. We were dead. <laughs> Luckily, prayerfully, thank goodness that that wasn't a real conflict. It was a training exercise in Camp Pendleton, California. Luckily, that was not real because we would have been dead. Thankfully, we lived through that experience. But what has worked for police, military, firefighters, doctors, you name it. It also works for the spiritual combat. What do you do when Satan attacks? Do you lie on the ground? hoping it'll pass? Do you listen to the voice of Satan as he convinces you to do nothing in response? Do you just sit there and take the attacks, succumbing to them? Or do you fight back? There is the only one way to respond, and that's to fight back every single time. In this analogy, in this story that I tell about this ambush, Keep this in mind. Think about this in your own life and how you respond to the attacks of the world of sin and temptation and of Satan. But also think about this as we begin to explore the garden experience of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon and our Lord Jesus Christ as each of them has these experiences, these ambushes in a garden Who responds the right way and who doesn't? Think about this and apply this technique in your own life. Because in this experience, you will learn how you can conduct the spiritual combat anywhere and everywhere and have a chance at survival it has worked for me countless times every time i'm tempted with lust or anything else i immediately combat it with prayer and i do as saint or actually the soon to be the blessed pope john paul ii soon to be saint once wrote in love and responsibility on his chapter on continents that we must attack the sin and temptation immediately with prayer but more than that we must use that moment for our advantage to remind ourselves of the dignity of the human person and then break contact with that temptation and move away and regroup. Brothers, I want you to think about that this weekend. This garden experience this is the summation of history. This is his story. Jesus, our Lord. In the wilderness, when the people sinned and turned away from God, God would have to punish them like a father does for a child. He would send little, uh, little punishments towards them to help them to become more obedient. Well, one time, snakes were sent out. Snakes biting them and killing them. Snakes. Snakes. Like the ancient serpent in the garden, the dragon of ancient days, the father of lies and murder, sin itself, biting them, and they're succumbing to it. And so God commands Moses in Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, quote, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit any man, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So, God commands Moses to fashion this image of the serpent, the bronze serpent, and lift it up on a pole, lift it high, drawing the people to it for life. They're bitten by the snake of sin and they're dying in it, but they must look upon this image of the snake to have life. What sense does that make? Does it make any sense whatsoever? Yes, it does when we come to Christ. John chapter 12 verses 30 and through 33, quote, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He, he said this to show by what death he was to die, unquote. So it is our Lord who is lifted up like that bronze serpent, that when we look upon him, we receive life. But as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, quote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Unquote. So our Lord truly is the perfection of that bronze serpent. Sin who knew no sin. when it's lifted up all men are drawn to it so that we might be cured of the snake bite how profound is that for in the garden we shall find the answer why the cross why the suffering in the garden will come the summation of all history the purpose to the passion, death, and resurrection, to our salvation, and our calling as men of God can be found in the garden. And together, you and me, we will be on the journey and we will find the answer. I'm looking forward to it. May God richly bless you.